You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu. Today we have a fabulous honor of having one of my favorite entrepreneurs in uh, the valley here, and I think you will be as just as impressed as I am. Mir Imran is one of the most remarkable people I have ever met. He, like many of you, has a background in engineering. He was an electrical engineer by training, and then went and did a degree in biomedical engineering. He then a few years later, started a company called InCube Laboratories with the idea that he wanted to create a place to develop lots of new medical technologies. Over the last uh, years, he has started 20 different companies and has over 200 patents in his name. So I'm going to get a chance of, to interview Mir today, and I want to inter- invite him up to the front of the room. Thank you. Great. So, Mir, welcome back to campus. Thank you. Great. So, um, I tell you, a lot of people are very proud of themselves when they are a serial entrepreneur. But you have taken it well beyond that. You are a parallel entrepreneur. You have many different ventures going on at once. What does that mean and what's that all about? You know, I, uh, I didn't coin that term. I, one of the uh, people who had interviewed me a few years back coined that after looking at what I do. And um, parallel uh, entrepreneurship is, you know, just a, um, I, I work on many, many, many different problems and companies at the same time. And um, uh, as a result, I go crazy. You know, it's, 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 it's actually a very nutty thing to do. And I don't recommend it. Yeah, you don't recommend it. <laughs> you look very calm and relaxed to me. I mean, how many different projects do you have going on at any one time? You know, um, I, I sort of divide them in two groups. One is the active companies. So I currently have about eight companies. About eight companies. Are they all under the same roof at NQ? No, no, no. Some of them have graduated and left. Okay. Uh, about half of them have left and half of them are still there. And... Um, uh, I probably have about uh, a dozen projects, research projects, at any given time. Now, most of them don't make it. Uh, so maybe you could describe the pipeline. Things go from, uh, obviously, an idea mm-hmm. to something that becomes a research project, and then maybe it turns into a venture. Maybe you could explain the process. So, um, you know, as, as uh, most of you can imagine, it starts with the problem. Uh, the process is... Uh, uh, really, uh, it, it begins with the analysis of the problem, looking at the attributes of the problem. And when I say attributes, you, you look at uh, how big is the problem um, and how is that problem currently solved? Are there um, opportunities to improve that solution? Or some, sometimes you stumble on problems that haven't been solved. Uh, so you, you spend a lot of time understanding the problem and, you know, probably uh, during this first concept stage, uh, 80, 90 percent of my time goes in understanding the problem. So it's, it's really, um, I feel that the more time you spend with the problem, the better chance you have of coming up with a good solution. So I think just to give the audience a sense of the range of topics that you tackle, I mean, I think it's overwhelming. I can't even imagine that one person can be a master of all these different fields. Maybe you could give us a sampling of some of the projects you have going on right now. Well, um, 
probably about half of them are uh, in implantable devices. Uh, these are, um, there's one company developing a gastric pacemaker for the treatment of obesity. Um, another one is focused on um, treatment of chronic pain with an implantable stimulator. Um, and uh, another one is uh, developing an implantable device for uh, the treatment of atrial fibrillation. Um, uh, another one which is very exciting company where we're uh, applying, uh, it's, a, it's a drug device combination for the treatment of epilepsy. Um, so it's an it's a exciting um, novel approach. And I collaborated on that project with some scientists at uh, Duke. And uh, there are a couple others. Um, a um, artificial colon and rectum, you know, prosthetic colon and rectum company. Uh, for people who have um, colostomies due to uh, cancer or, or what have you. So we can potentially restore normal function. And then another one which is focused on um, uh, inflammatory bowel disease. So, so a whole range of things. How did you become so well-versed in all of these different fields? You know, I, I am actually not. I, I, it, it, it's, uh, what happens is I look at a problem uh, you know, for instance, take um, um, uh, any one of these things, epilepsy. And um, uh, when you look at epilepsy and you look at the drugs that are out there and uh, the device therapies that are the deep brain stimulation, you find that the success is really low. The, I mean, the, the, uh, the best therapies there have success rates um, that are... Um, uh, amazingly low, both drugs and devices. So I see that as an opportunity. So I go into that area really not understanding it that well. I mean, I went to medical school, so I have reasonable understanding, but I don't have current understanding. So I do a lot of literature search, and you know, the way most of you would start digging up a problem, I look at what is currently being done, what are the side effects of those therapies, um, and uh, and then I dig deeper. I go into the cellular level. What is happening at the cellular level? Do we understand the problem well enough? And sometimes I end up coming up with a solution. Not always. So what do you consider a good exit strategy for these ventures? Do they usually get acquired? Do they go public? Uh, what ends up happening? <clears throat> you know, um, if you look at uh, my companies, um, I probably have sold nine companies, and um, uh, an additional three have gone public. Mm -hmm. And but even the ones that went public were ultimately acquired. So, um, uh, and then out of the eight that are currently there, um, there's one getting ready to go public. Um, shortly, so it's a mixed bag. You know, depends on the kind of technology, but. You know, it's very difficult for any of these companies to survive long-term on their own because they're a single-product company. So the risks are very high for these companies. You know, one hiccup and, and you're, uh, you're in deep trouble. So, um, you know, manufacturing problem, clinical problem, regulatory problem, any delays can basically uh, shut you down. So um, that's why most of these companies end up getting sold to bigger companies. 
why do you set them up as individual companies as opposed to having one big company with all of these different product lines? You know, that, that the, the, um, one of the reasons startups are successful is because you have a single-minded focus on a one problem. And so um, if you have, you know, four problems or five problems under one roof with a, an R&D team, uh, first of all, investors... Are, you can't attract investors. They're attracted to a specific problem. Um, and um, secondly, you can't focus. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and one project can steal all the resources if it's going well. Mm -hmm. um, or one project that's not going well can drag the whole thing down. Mm -hmm. So it's better to separate them early. And, and I, I only allow myself to be... Um, you know, distracted and, and unfocused. So you're the one who gets to be distracted and unfocused, but all the teams are uh, essentially are very focused. focused on their project. Right. Right. Now, where do these ideas come from? Do they all just pop out of your brain and you, you know, sort of wake up one morning and say, we've got to solve this epilepsy problem or, you know, we've got to figure out how to deal with obesity? Or do people come to you with their ideas? I think it's a, a little bit of uh, both... Um, more, most of these companies are my ideas, most of the technology. So on a couple of occasions, I've collaborated on the epilepsy company, on the pain company. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, um, you know, but I'm not averse to working with other scientists and entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. uh, I just have had my plate full with my own ideas, so I haven't uh, actively gone out and recruited uh, more and more. Things, so. that, right. You're not at a loss for ideas. Yeah, you know, I think ideas are so easy to come up with. They, they're the easiest thing. It's, it's the implementation and, and you know, it, it's a long road. Uh, whenever you launch a company, it's a six, seven year journey mm -hmm. if you're successful. And um, so you, I spend a lot of time early and I'm willing to kill these ideas if they don't meet the criteria. So why don't you tell us a little story? I want to hear about uh, at least the process that typically happens and maybe the time frame for one of these ideas. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's take one that's a success, you know, uh, some <clears throat> idea to actually some exit and, and the hurdles along the way. Yeah, so, uh, um, you know, this, uh, these ideas come um, sort of uh, in random multiple ways. So in, back in 1992, um, a friend of mine had a um, carotid endarterectomy, which is um, a cleaning up of carotid arteries, and ended up with a stroke. And, um, had, and he had then, a few months later, the second carotid artery cleaned, and he had another stroke. And I started scratching my head, and I said, you know, th these are embolic events, and there should be a way to fix that or, or prevent that from happening. And, and then um, I, I was busy with a couple other companies, so I just, it was in the back of my mind. And then <coughs> a, um, another um, year later, another acquaintance of mine had a saphenous vein graft, angioplasty, and um, ended up dying um, because of a huge amount of embolic load flowing downstream into the heart. Uh, so that really uh, was, was the beginning of the concept. So I said, this is a problem that's worth fixing. So I went to some of my friends who were interventional cardiologists, um, folks here and at other institutions. And um, I said, you know, 
is this a problem in your uh, in your practice? And they said, no, you know, we never have embolic events in our uh, in, in when you when we're doing stenting or angioplasty. So I started looking at literature, and and what I found is, uh, sure enough, in the U.S., clinical literature you didn't couldn't find back in the early 90s, couldn't find any papers talking about embolic events and complications. Uh, but Europeans were writing about it because they're not worried about getting sued. So um, always when you're looking at some unique problems, look at European literature. Sometimes they, they, uh, they're much more open about problems. So I decided to come up with um, uh, some tools that prevent embolic events during the procedure. It wasn't really uphill battle because when I went to talk to investors, they, in doing the diligence, they uh, would call these same guys who said this is not a problem. So I told them that this is what you're going to hear, but trust me, this is, you know. So it, it was, uh, I think, primarily because I had established a long track record. So the investor said, fine, you know, in, in the presence of clinical experts saying, no, we don't need it, um, I was able to raise four or five million dollars and launch the company. And um, uh, as we started getting more, uh, some clinical data, uh, publishing that data, there were 20 other embolic prevention companies that came out uh, because everybody saw uh, how important this area was. And what we found out was in saphenous vein graft therapy or, or um, interventions, there was almost a 20% incidence of embolic events. It was yeah. huge. Yeah. And um, uh, so we were able to do a randomized trial. Here's another interesting anecdote. Um, we got FDA approval on a 510K. Most of you know what a 510K is. I think a lot of people won't know what that is. 510K is a, um, a, an easy way of getting, a, a faster way of getting FDA approval, and it applies to those devices that have a precedent. So if you have a device that is similar to some other device and it is not going to um, cause any harm to the patient, uh, you have to come up with justifications, and FDA generally um, gives you a very quick approval. Um, so we got that. But we realized that if we were to start selling the product with that approval, physicians were still of the mindset that uh, uh, you didn't need this, this uh, embolic, you know, that they were of the mindset that embolic events were not a problem. So we went back to the FDA and said, we would like to do a randomized trial under a PMA. PMA is the more longer uh, protracted thing, and we wanted to establish scientifically in a randomized trial with statistical significance that we can reduce embolic events, and it, it, it does make a difference to the patients. And it took another $10 million and two more years to do 800 patients, and that helped turn this uh, approach into a standard of care. So physicians could no longer say, we don't need it. So we ended up selling the company to Medtronic. So let me ask you a question. FDA approval. Mm -hmm. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? It's huge hurdle 
Oh, it's but once absolutely. you get over it, does it give you a really long lead time against competitors? I mean, is this something that is a real wonderful benefit in the medical world, or is it oh, something? I think, I think it's an essential uh, thing. You know, um, uh, it, it sort of forces us to um, to really um, think through the Im impact, the safety uh, uh, issues for the patient, and um, um, and, and the the, the um, uh, consequences of not complying with, with regulations are, are, are really, uh, uh, really bad. So, uh, I mean, and a lot of these regulations are good things. You know, you, you're forced to document everything, uh, f follow a procedure in your development, product development plan, and um, keep track of uh, what you're shipping out, traceability. So all these things are good and, and, and uh, good practices. So I, I think it's essential. I was thinking about it from the business perspective, mm -hmm. that once you make it through, you know, you've sort of left a lot of other people um, scrambling to catch up. That that's such a big barrier to get over? Is that something that you view as an important competitive advantage? I think um, regulatory uh, um, stuff is, is, is a competitive advantage, but you're not going to keep... Uh, others away who are in the business because mm -hmm. they understand the regulatory process as well as you do. Um, but I think it's intellectual property that is the real barrier. Mm -hmm. And, and um, that's why we spend a lot of time and I think um, most entrepreneurs look at intellectual property as, a, as, a, uh, as an essential element in, in uh, commercializing something. So you're talking about patents, patents. having protected patents. Correct. And uh, so do you spend a, um, a significant amount of your resources in essentially protecting oh, absolutely. the uh, absolutely. inventions that you mm -hmm. come up with? Yeah. Great. So now here was a, let's look at the flip side. That was a great story of a big success and where you end up uh, even putting more hurdles in front of yourself in order to make sure that your product was really unique. What about some big failure? I know that you, you are unique in that a huge percentage of things that you do are successful, but if you had some that have just bombed along the way, you go, "Wow, gosh!" Yeah, would have done that differently. <laughs> you know, I, I actually, um, um, the my success rate is high, mainly because I'm willing to kill the projects before I launch a company. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot. If I count the projects I, I kill, the uh, the, uh, uh, the failures are many. Uh, but among the companies, I've lost two companies. One was a dot com, which I started in the fall of 1999, which was bad timing. And uh, I should have stuck to medical devices. And, and um, so that was, it, it lasted for all of- You caught the bug too, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it lasted all of uh, eight, nine months. And uh, so that was a total waste of time. Um, and then um, another company I had started uh, back in 95, and it was, um, as I was doing a lot of work with implantable devices, I realized that biomaterials um, were going to become very important for implantable or you know, even non-implantable devices. Uh, biocompatibility is, is essential whenever you touch a patient. So um, I, I um, started a company to develop biomaterials and my idea was I would um, license these to other med tech companies for use in their devices. And um, after a couple of years I, of more thinking about it, I had already started the company. I realized that it was um, 
uh, not a good business model because you know you're you're um, selling this biomaterial uh, which is you know a small part of a product perhaps and you're trying to c collect royalties and and those royalties won't come until that company is successful that product is successful so i decided to um, shut it down and fold it into my business incubator so i'm i'm still using those biomaterials in a number of my companies but um, so even though it was a failure, it wasn't a real thing. Right. The technology <laughs> is really quite, ah. was quite good. So do you have a formal process of evaluating things along the <coughs> way? Do you wait for certain milestones? Or every day are you sort of taking the temperature of these ventures? You know, there, there is a, um, I, I realized um, after building several companies, and in some of these I really went through a lot of uh, headaches and, and challenges. Uh, there was one company I should never have started. Uh, but, you know, I was ultimately able to make it successful, but it was a bad uh, idea. So I, that, really, that was the one that really taught me the value of discipline and, and, and um, analysis up front to evaluate your ideas and kill them because it's much more painful to kill a company or to fix a failing company than to kill a, uh, a nascent idea where you haven't invested a lot of time and money in it. So you put a lot of upfront effort into right. evaluating whether it's highly likely that it's going right. to be successful exactly. first. Right. Great. So. Um, but that's not no guarantee of success. I mean, the the, no. the big hurdles come once you actually start the project. Right. I'm always fascinated with entrepreneurship um, about the escalation of commitment mm -hmm. along the way. And uh, do you feel that at each one of these steps? Oh yeah, yeah. And you know, it's um, I, I sometimes feel like I'm stuck in the. Twilight zone of the startups, you know, it's it's an you know it's a long it's a marathon, and you have to um, look at each problem, solve it, um, periodically step back and make sure you're you're going in the right direction. You have to surround yourself with really smart people, get smart money involved, um, hire people who are really uh, committed and talented. I mean, it's 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 all those elements and. Sometimes, um, you know, a lot of times companies get into trouble because of um, uh, people problems. Well, I was just going to ask you about that. Um, clearly, you've got all of these ventures going. You need to have really amazing people for each one of them. Do you have a pool of people that you just keep kind of pulling in off the bench for each one of these new projects, or do you restaff each one very specifically? I think it's, it's the latter. Uh, occasionally, I have had uh, several times people who have gone into um, one company and seven, eight years later, that company is sold and whatnot. They've come back and gone through another company. But most of the time, I put a team together for that project. And it's, I tell you, it's, that's the hardest thing to do. Is that the hardest part? Mm -hmm. what, what, are you, what are you looking for when you're looking for people? Is it looking for pure technical skills? Are, are you looking for complementary skills? Are you look, what, are, what are you looking for? Well, I, I, I first parse the, the, the problem, the project. And generally, it's a development project. And you parse it into its mechanical engineering, material science, electron, if it has all those elements, or in some cases, uh, biology and, and chemistry. And you, you look at all these things and s figure out what skill sets you need and, and try and find those. You can never all, you cannot find the exact skill set you're looking for. So what, you, what I usually do is I find somebody who's really good. Um, 
I'll, I'll hire them and then modify my plan of hiring the other people. So it's, it's, a, it's a very dynamic process. And sometimes I find some really brilliant people and I say, boy, I, I really want to start a company around this person. Uh-huh. So, so Have sometimes you done that? I've done that once, actually. Yeah, yeah. so t- what tells the story? You found somebody and you said, this is like an amazing person. I'm going to bring them in and build a company around them. Right. So uh, this guy, his name is Glenn McLaughlin. He actually got his PhD at Stanford. But I, I, he started uh, work for me in 1991. Uh, he had just graduated from Carnegie Mellon as undergrad. And he worked with me for five years and then left to get his PhD at Stanford. And while he was getting his PhD, he was the smartest guy I've ever worked with. I mean, you, you should get him here sometime. He's an amazing guy. So um, when he started his uh, PhD here, I asked him to, I told him, you know, I'll give you a cubicle and $1,000 a month uh, stipend. Just hang out here because uh, I'm always working on, on some problems and we can brainstorm occasionally. And uh, he would do that. and, and uh, Back in 99 or 2000, I came up with a, um, an idea for a, a new ultrasound imaging system, uh, a new way of doing ultrasound imaging. And I decided to form a company. And he was still finishing his PhD, he hadn't finished it. So I went ahead and started the company. It's called Zonari Medical Systems now. And um, it's, Within a few months, he joined as senior engineer, and I knew his his potential, so I made him chief technical officer. And the the product has done amazingly well, and it has um, the company did thirty million in revenue last year, and it's getting ready to go public next year. So it's a you know he's he's one of those guys where. I can get him, I know I can put him in something and he's going to be successful. So it's, uh, when I find some of those, you know, those people, I hang on to them. That's terrific. So let me ask you, a lot of people think that people start companies because they want to make a lot of money. Now, looking at all of the things you've done, I'm making the assumption that that's not really an issue for you anymore and you keep doing this. So what motivates you? What is, what is keeping you going? I mean, this is hard work every day, a lot of uncertainty. You're juggling all this stuff. What's your major, major motivation? Well, it, it's not money. Uh, I, I, no, no one in their right mind would do this for, uh, for money. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's um, problems. It's, uh, I have this thing that when a problem gets hold of me, I, I can't shake it unless I figure out that I can't solve it. Or if I figure out that I can solve it, then I, I, I'm not satisfied with just an, a uh, theoretical solution. To me, these solutions uh, are not complete unless you bring them to life and commercialize them. So it's a, uh, to me, that, that is uh, the most uh, um, uh, challenging and at, trying, at times trying and, and, and difficult, but... But when you reach the the end, it's an amazing feeling that you know you you did something, created something out of nothing. So, what would your typical day be like? I mean, I'm I'm trying to imagine. I know what it's like to run one company. Uh, what is it like every single day? What are you What are you doing? You know, each day is uh, um, is different. I, if it's 
you know, for example, today I spent the morning, um, just before I came, I was for six hours in a design review for one of my companies, and I had the whole engineering team, and we were going through details. Uh, but um, if I look at generally how I spend my time, a lot of my time goes in fundraising because with seven, eight companies, at least one or two companies are raising money at any given point in time. So I'm, I'm raising money, which is, which is uh, uh, not the most enjoyable thing to do. But um, apart from that, I'm working with scientists and engineers. Some uh, of the time I spend actually in, in the lab and... Uh, uh, I'm hiring people. A uh, lot of, the, you know, with all these companies, I have uh, design reviews and, and brainstorming sessions and, and uh, planning animal studies. As, as these companies grow, we, I get involved with the regulatory strategy, uh, <coughs> clinical strategy. So you're intimately involved with all these companies? Yeah. As, on an operations level? Uh, yeah, yes, up to a certain point. Now, a company like Zonari, which is generating revenue and the products are pretty stable, I'm less involved with them. A mm -hmm. um, company that is brand new, and I'm just being, I'm, I spend a lot of time. It's like children, you know. Mm -hmm. The older they are, the less uh, maintenance. Mm -hmm. They don't need as much babysitting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some of them. <laughs> so um, do you invest in any of these ventures yourself? Yeah, so, you know, uh, this fundraising process has been so painful for the last 30 years um, that I decided to uh, uh, raise a venture fund myself, So, uh, I, which I have. And uh, I do invest in other people's companies. I've been doing that for, in fact, I'm a partner at uh, Draper Fisher Jurvetson. Um, and I have been there with one of their global funds for the last six, seven years. Okay. And... Um, uh, investing in life science companies, uh, and I'll continue to do that, and investing in my own companies. So, right, so you set up this fund, and uh, is there any conflict of interest there in terms of, you know, having a fund and then investing in your own ventures? You know, I, I, if, uh, yes, of course. <laughs> I, 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 but there's the, the, a simple rule about conflict of interest. If you don't have a conflict of interest, you're not doing anything interesting. <laughs> so... so <laughs> So my my uh, Can I the, you on that? absolutely, <laughs> but 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 the second part of it is that uh, you deal with conflict of interest by transparency and disclosure, mm -hmm. and and uh, uh, you know most people are comfortable with that. So you've done all these amazing things, and now you look out at this room full of all of these students, who many of whom would love to be sitting in your place a few years from now. Uh, they're I'm sure very, they will. Uh, they're, well, they're very passionate, I, I know, about solving big problems, and they're trying to figure out how did they start doing that. Are there things that you wish you had learned in school uh, that would have made things easier for you? You know, I, I absolutely. I think from a scientific and technical standpoint, I had a very, very strong background and foundation so I could I could go into new areas and 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 um, develop that expertise but I, I never took a single business course or accounting course or finance or marketing and and I had to um, focus on all these things in building companies um, and that that was um, that was a, a challenge so uh, marketing and all that came naturally, but you know, accounting, I had to hire an accountant to teach me, you know, how do you read a balance sheet and income statement? I didn't know that when I first started a company. So I wish I had some of that uh, 
but, but uh, earlier. So what you're saying is pick up some of those basic skills, yeah. so sort of accounting, I, business, right, right. marketing. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, you, you have to, as an entrepreneur, uh, if you're starting a company, you really have to know every aspect of your business. Uh -huh. You may not be an expert in every aspect, but you really need to know what needs to be done, how do you make this thing work, what kind of people do you bring in. And when you have people working, you should be able to figure out if they're doing a good job or not. And unless you really understand their work, mm -hmm. you won't be able to do that. So, so um, I really think that a broad understanding is important, but depth is important too. You, you can't just have you know, broad understanding of everything, but no depth. So. One of the things we always say is that we want T-shaped people, right? People with a depth of understanding in one area, but a breadth of understanding of different disciplines. I, I think, in, at least in medicine, in, in my field, you need depth in multiple areas. You know, you, it's not enough to be a good electrical engineer. I mean, I, I have uh, to spend, uh, I, you know, if you look at my patents, um, I have as many things in electrical engineering as in mechanical engineering and uh, cell biology, uh, protein chemistry, um, software. So uh, these are multidisciplinary problems, that most of the problems that we deal with. You know, and um, so you really have to generate or develop depth in multiple areas. I, you know, for instance, I started two of my companies were in the security business. and. Um, um, and they were both quite successful and, and it was, you know, again, the, the, that particular problem got hold of me and I had to, uh, yeah, I, had, I had to solve it. Yeah. So I think talking about problems, I mean, this is one of the things we talk about all the time is that problems are opportunities and that's mm -hmm. really what entrepreneurship is all about is identifying <laughs> those problems and then turning them into opportunities. When you look around the world right now, uh, what big problems, I, obviously you can't solve them all, mm -hmm. what problems would you say would be really exciting for students today to be looking out for? I mean, there, there are problems el else, everywhere, you know, in, in medicine, you know, that's where I have uh, spent all my life. Um, there are lots of problems that are either poorly solved or, or not solved at all. So you don't have to dig very deep uh, to find those, you know, from diabetes, heart disease, um, uh, orthopedic problems, uh, central nervous system. We really are, are beginning to scratch the surface. We don't understand the CNS very well. So there's lots of problems to solve. But there are other kinds of problems. You know, in this country, there are, what, 47 million or 50 million people without health insurance. How do you make health insurance uh, available to last lots of people? That's, that's a, that's a uh, mind twister. And I, I guess these, these guys and these politicians are trying to figure it out. But I think uh, scientists should uh, put their minds to it, creativity and, and whatnot. So it's, there are some big problems like that. And uh, cancer is uh, still unsolved. And, and, but I think there's some really interesting solutions on the horizon. So I'm going to ask one more question, and then I'm going to open it up for the audience. I want you guys to start thinking about what questions, because you're going to get a great Entrepreneurship Week t-shirt if you have a great question. Um, what other advice would you want to give to students? I mean, we talked about, you know, what should they learn in school, you know, find, get some business background. But just looking back over your career, what other general advice would you want to give to them or that you wish someone had given to you when you were still a student? Oh, I mean, I wish, I've made so many mistakes along the way. It's, uh, um, 
I, I think you have to be um, uh, a good listener and, and really um, um, recognize that you don't have all the answers. And don't fall in love with your ideas because, you know, sometimes the very first idea is not the, the right <coughs> idea. So you really have to, and uh, you know, when you f have a few failures under your belt, you, it really is a humbling experience and, and you, you listen more. But if you're um, starting out as an entrepreneur, uh, be a good listener, uh, surround yourself with people who, who are experienced. Um, and I think, I mean, my style is uh, I question everything, even when I hear it from the experts. Uh, and I want to satisfy myself. So, I, you know, a lot of times I've done things where the experts said it was not needed or couldn't be done or shouldn't be done. And, and I would always ask, why? And, and, you know, it's the questioning. How do you get to the, to the heart of the problem? And you have to do the do the, a lot of um, um, investigation and whatnot, learning about the problem. So unless you, know, you see, sometimes for, uh, somebody else might define the problem and you build a company around it, those things are very dangerous. I think sometimes um, uh, physicians might come up with an idea um, that that is not uh, really, uh, they fall in love with the idea. But a, a, an entrepreneur talking to them might think that uh, since it's a physician, it must be uh, a big idea. So I've seen so many companies being formed by physicians. They were making small incremental improvements on existing products, and that was not worthy of becoming a company. Uh, perhaps it was a good improvement that should have been licensed. So you have to really uh, assess what you're getting into upfront. So that must take a tremendous amount of discipline to basically question everything, because mm -hmm. it certainly would be easier to sort of read something and say, okay, great, I can put this aside, we now understand this, and move on, as opposed to going and constantly uh, right. digging things up again and saying, is this really true? Right. Absolutely. Great. Okay. So I, um, we have some time for some questions. Who would like to start? Okay. Back there. Yeah. As someone who's interested in both medicine and engineering and considering graduate school in both those areas. I was wondering um, what, in retrospect, what part of that training do you view as most important? Like, could you g have gotten by without some of it and then kind of picked it up along the way or you know, part of that thing? So please repeat the question for the listeners. So uh, the, the question is what, uh, the, the mix of training with medicine and engineering, what part of training was more important? Um, I, you know, I think to me, the most important part of my training was uh, the uh, training in fundamentals, whether it was um, electromagnetic fields to um, um, thermodynamics, uh, heat transfer, fluid flow. These are the foundations of um, all other things that you understand that you have to deal with in medicine and chemistry and biochemistry and cell biology. So you, you really have to pay attention to all these foundational things. And then you can build all kinds of things on top of that. Great. Next question. Yep. You've been a prolific entrepreneur, but I'm very curious to hear about your first company. What was the concept? How did you get it started? How did you get it founded? And what was the right of taking it? How did you get it? 
Uh, 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 interesting, long, long answer, small, short question. Uh, the question is what, what was uh, my first company, how I got started. I was still in medical school, third year of medical school. And um, um, I uh, came across a cardiologist from uh, Johns Hopkins, um, uh, Dr. Michelle Mirowski. And um, he had had a personal um, um, episode. He had lost his best friend in a sudden cardiac death episode. And he was heartbroken, and he said there should have been some technology that could have saved him or should have saved him. And he started the concept that there should be a defibrillator that you could wear or put inside your body. So he didn't really have a technical background, engineering background, but he, he identified that, that need. And um, he went to Medtronic and said, Medtronic was a small pacing company then. This is in the <laughs> early 70s, um, 72, 73, or, or, or thereabouts. And Medtronic looked at that and said, you're crazy. It can't be done. And um, um, so I ran into him uh, at one of these conferences. This is in 77, 78. And during this time, he was tinkering at Johns Hopkins in the basement with some grad students and really not getting anywhere with it. And so I looked at that, and I said, of course, this can be done. And I can do it. And um, uh, I was 23, 24 years old, and um, uh, 23 years old, and it was, uh, I didn't know how to raise money, and, uh, uh, and we um, talked to a lot of people. In those days, venture capital didn't exist. I mean, uh, I, I hadn't even heard of venture capitalism. Uh, so we got a corporate investor in Pittsburgh, and the company called Intech was formed. And, and um, um, in the, you know, five years, within five years, we developed the implantable defibrillator and sold it to Eli Lilly, which then spun out Guidant, which became the foundation for Guidant. Um, now, let me just ask you, how many implanted defibrillators are there on the market or implanted in people now? Oh, uh, probably uh, uh, a couple million, maybe. Yeah. So. I know my father has one, so really? I thank you. <laughs> so it, that was a real challenging project and, and uh, um, uh, really pushed the boundaries of engineering just to get, get that done. Um, and at that point, were you hooked? I mean, once you did your first one, did you say, okay, well, I'm that, do that this wasn't again? really my first one. The first one was I was, um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, I was actually uh, an undergrad at Rutgers and uh, um, a friend of mine had a break-in, and he said, you know, I need an, an alarm system. So I said, well, I can design and build one. So I designed one and built one and installed it in his home. And that was such a uh, nicely done thing that all his friends wanted it. So I started a business. And I would, um, uh, in weekends and nights, I would build these things and, and install them. I had a nice income. So. I had set up a sub, you know, uh, S subchapter S uh, company and um, used my credit cards and say, you know, so it was it was a painful way of building a company with no capital, and so um, so I had tasted that 
failure, the, 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 the trials of building a company uh -huh. with no money. You know, I, I, the first um, eight or ten companies I did in my garage. And, um, uh, you know, when, when I was doing electronics and mechanical engineering kind of companies, I could do that in my head. I didn't even need a garage. Um, and, uh, in fact, several of these companies I would just sketch it on a piece of paper and get it funded. Uh, no prototypes, nothing. And... Um, um, but then when I started working with cell biology and protein chemistry and tissue engineering, and um, I realized that I needed a laboratory environment where I could do that. The second thing that prompted me to set up a, a, an, a, my own lab was um, um, that I was uh, uh, working on multiple projects. So if I, in the past, when I was involved with a company, I raised money for it. And if I come up with a new idea, if I do it in that company, in that building, using the, those resources, the investors and the shareholders say, this is our idea, this belongs to us. And, uh, and so I had to do everything outside the company. So I'd have a day job building that company and then at night, I'm trying to do this, keep these things separate. And um, that was the other reason what prompted me to create my own uh, laboratory space. Okay. If you had a chance to live your life over multiple times, uh, what other career path do you think you would have chosen? So can you repeat that? If I had to live my life over again? Uh, if I had a chance to live my life again, what would I do differently? Or what other career? You know, I, um, you know, sometimes some of us are wired from childhood. I was wired from my childhood to be uh, a scientist and an entrepreneur. You know, I remember back when I was, uh, uh, you know, 10, 11 years old, I would build toys in my free time and take them to school and sell them to other kids. <laughs> so, uh, so I, you know, this was uh, in my blood. Um, so you are a natural-born entrepreneur. I, I've yeah. been doing it for <laughs> 40 years. Did so I read long. something about you that uh, you took apart some of these toys that your parents started buying you to two toys, one for you to play with and one for you to take apart? Yeah, yeah. you know, I actually used, when I was real two, three, four years old, I used to tear apart every toy to see what would, how it was. And in those days, you know, in the 60s, uh, things were all mechanical, um, wind-up toys and whatnot. So I would take them apart and couldn't put them back together. So I, I told my mother that you should always get me two so I can play with one and, and take, one take one apart. So she started doing that at a very, very young age. That's great. Yes. Yeah. So the big company is not dead. Certainly Google turned into a big company, Intel, Apple. Um, your idea of, of building a uh, a company that again, then becomes acquired um, has that fast, limber kind of thing. Do you want to talk at all more about the trade-off of the value of creating something that just goes huge and becomes a gigantic company versus, you know, a lot of people say, well, a product is not a company. We don't fund products. We fund companies. What's the difference between a product and a company, and, and how do you know when you have one or the other? You know, that's a very good question. Uh, uh, the, the question is... Um, 
um, several questions there. Um, uh, how do you build a, a large company, scale the company yourself rather than selling it? And how do you know when you have just a product or a company on your hand? The, a simple test for that is market size. You know, are, are you uh, solving a problem for a large market? You know, if you're, for example, uh, a gastric pacemaker for obesity, that could be a multi-billion dollar, if you're successful, multi-billion dollar project or product. Um, a, an incremental uh, improvement in an existing product is, is if you wouldn't build a company around it, or if the market was, you know, $50 million a year, it, it would be very hard to build a company around that. So uh, market size is really what dictates uh, uh, whether you build a company or, or treat it as a product um, <coughs> that you perhaps license. I think the, the reason, um, I mean, many of these companies who, let's take the case of Medtronic, they're, they're a big company, but it's, these companies have become big somewhat accidentally. Uh, you know, they, had a, they were a single product company for a long time, but they were lucky enough to, to get to a critical mass where they could use that currency or their, their, their money and the, their, uh, their stock value to acquire other companies and diversify. So, so you know, their handful, Boston Scientific is, grew the same way. Um, and J&J um, &J started with a single small business and they started... So, you know, if you're successful at one, Foxhall, I mean, there, there are some recent examples that are uh, growing into diversified companies, but the risk there is very high. You know, you have a very high probability, even if you have successfully developed a product, one hiccup there and, and you essentially go into shutdown mode because by then your, your expenses, monthly expenses are very high. And unless you're bringing in revenue, you can't sustain that very long. So, so the risks are very high for single product companies, and that's why you see so few of them turn into the, you know, Medtronics of the world or Googles. Another question? What's the role of your family? In your Pardon me? What's, What's the, the role, role of your family? You know, uh, uh, my wife is sitting here, and uh, uh, and my daughter. Uh, I have five kids, four girls, and and a, and a boy, and and I, you know. I, I really have fun with my uh, wife and kids, and and um, I really want them to learn um, to look at the world the way I I look at the world. You know, pro you know, identifying, looking at problems as opportunities, and identifying those and becoming problem solvers. Because that's whether you're in medicine or. Uh, uh, Engineering, or you know, you know, in any other field in business, uh, f identifying opportunities and solving those problems is really uh, how you you um, impact a lot of people. How do you do that with your kids? Hmm? How do you do that? Do you give them a lot of problems? You know, my son, for example, um, he uh, from age ten, he's twenty-seven years old. So from age ten to age eighteen, he worked every summer in one company or the other. And when he started, he was doing, you know, mail sorting. But uh, towards the end, he was writing software for uh, keeping track of patent databases and stuff like that. And uh, after he graduated, uh, the first thing he did was um, he wanted to 
build a company. And so he started his first company and he's uh, working on it. I don't know if it will be successful. Did you but find it? <laughs> 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 yeah. Okay. Great. Next question. Yeah. How you think the medical device industry has changed over the last decade, and also any distinctions you um, garnered from making many companies that you've learned that you now institute every single time? Um, how's has the medical device industry changed over the last uh, many years? And what was the second part? Any real distinctions you've learned from doing many companies that since that you always um, apply them in your newest. Yeah, so medical device industry has uh, become more exciting. There are a lot more people building companies. You know, in the early 80s, there were 10 of us doing it. You know, now there are 1,000 of us doing it. Uh, so um, that's very exciting. The pace of innovation has, has, uh, uh, has uh, increased. What, what I look at, uh, um, you know, I'm always trying to figure out um, a risk that I face, risks that my business face, faces. And um, so I, I, at any given point in time, I sort of write down the top three risks I'm facing. So I really go after them. So when I first start a company, I don't really um, build any um, milestone charts and, and um, uh, project plans. I think that when you're dealing with some really uh, red-hot, white-hot risks, you really focus on those, solve them, and then step back and say, okay, now what are the other risks? So you're constantly, you're in the risk management business building a company. So you really have to take care of those risks. Now, there comes a point when you can say, okay, now it's an execution play. So, so at that point, you, you, uh, uh, you do the project planning and all that. Great. Do we have any more questions? Great. Feel that uh, you generally have more ideas that you want to pursue than you can personally incubate. And yeah. so, do you think of, how do you think about scaling up the activities of incubate? So, the question is do I have uh, uh, more ideas than I can handle? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, I probably have 10 companies buzzing around in my head at any given time, but I just, you know, sometimes I never get to them um, uh, because someone else does it. and. Uh, uh, yeah, that is, that is a real problem for me. A big problem. <laughs> well, you know what? I want to thank you so much. This was absolutely Pleasure. terrific. I think that all of you hopefully are as impressed with Mir as I am and uh, wish you the best of success thank with you. all your next ventures. Thank you. Thank you.